0: And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program as I uh, get settled in here in my chair and get ready for a very, very interesting program indeed. We are going to be talking uh, with our very special guest today who is going to share with us work that he's doing, a book he has, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of of cellular memory, consciousness, and our bodies. Dr. Thomas R. Verney is my guest. And, uh, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. I, I'm always intrigued by conversations of this nature. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are going to dive into this because. Uh, I think that this is going to open up some doors for a lot of people. Uh, This particular book, it's a a breakthrough that promises to shift our understanding of the mind-brain connection and reveal the mind's relationship with our bodies and in the mind within the brain. And, of course, you are basically saying that this is a very limited belief. So um, we're going to dive into this. First of all, I don't know if you ever saw this. There was a documentary I was watching on the subject of death and dying, and they got the permission of this particular individual who was uh, in the last hours of their life, and they had him laying out on a a scale, a way a scale, and what they did was uh, they weighed him. They kept the scale on when he passed, when his essence left his body. I don't remember the exact loss of weight on the scale, but it was maybe like, I don't know, an eighth or a quarter of a pound or something like that. But there was a diminishment of this individual's weight. Did he come back to life? No, he did not. He left. And so uh, it basically opened the door for speculation as to what it was that left the body, that reduced the weight of the individual. Um, and I know that's a kind of a strange place to start, but we talk all the time about, you know, well, where is our mind and memories? Where's our ego? And where is our consciousness, our soul, if you will? Reminds me of the, uh, do you remember the uh, Men in Black program, the movie? And they captured this giant alien and they laid him out on the table inside the headquarters, and they popped open the head, and there was this tiny little character inside. And that's how I felt as a kid, that I'm looking through these eyes and listening through these ears and so forth. So let's talk a little bit about uh, who we really are. What's your What's your thought? What's your research tell you? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a
1: wonderful beginning, actually. It's not strange at all. I think it's... Quite, quite wonderful. Um, You see, most of the neurologists and scientists who uh, dwell on the nervous system and the mind, they believe that the mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain. What they mean by that is it's epi, like epigenetics, above. It's like a function of the brain, okay? The same way as urine, for example, is a function of the kidneys. So the kidneys make urine, the brain makes the mind. Mm -hmm. When the brain is dead, the mind is gone, finished. Uh, But of course, you know, that does not take into account the fact that the mind is not in any way comparable to urine, Uh, urine is material, you can see it, you can measure it, Uh, you can do all kinds of computations with it, you cannot do that with the mind. The mind essentially is, is energy. And so one of the things that scientists have kind of forgotten about or not, not take into account is, you know, Einstein's, you know, absolutely unique formula, E is equal mc squared. In other words, you can convert energy to matter and you can convert matter to energy. That's what the hydrogen bomb is all about, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Same thing with, with the mind. Uh, So I'm not at all surprised that when a person, you know, dies, uh, some matter uh, escapes uh, in the form of energy because matter gets converted to energy and the mind is energy. So when the mind dies, consciousness leaves you. Uh, There is a change. in, uh, in the weight of that person. Um, but it's even more interesting, you know, you asked about consciousness, you talked about the soul. It's even more interesting when you think of people, when you consider people who actually die and then they come back to life. That's, that's another, you know, end of life, interesting phenomenon. Um, as, a young, as a young doctor, when I was interning in a hospital, as part of my training, Uh, One of my patients died in front of me. Like he had a heart attack. He was dead for all intents and purposes. He was not breathing. He did not have a pulse. Mm -hmm. I was taught that when that happens, you take a syringe with adrenaline and you put it into his heart right away. And uh, you try to revive a person like that. And that's what I did. And uh, the person came back, if I can use that phrase, came back in about five minutes, five to ten minutes. And then, and this is not unique, you can find this in the literature all over the place, then he described in great detail what had happened in the room while he was dead. And he described it all as if he was looking down from the ceiling on what was happening in the room. He he talked about the doctors, the nurses, uh, what I did, all the things that he could not have possibly uh, seen uh, with his eyes because his eyes were closed. So what I'm saying in the book to come back to the book and to continue this analogy, what I'm saying in my book is that the mind is more than the brain. The mind involves the whole body, all the cells in our bodies, and um, the way I really got into this, if I may, just give uh-huh. you the example. Uh, about, well, I've always been interested. I've always been interested in the mind, um, and uh, when I was um, when I was 13 years old, I read uh, Freud's Interpretation of Dreams. And I was just totally, totally stricken by it. I just thought this is the most wonderful writing in the world. And it's then and there that I made up my mind that I would become a psychiatrist. And so uh, I did. And uh, then as a psychiatrist, I was always interested in memory because that's what people tell you about, right? You ask them, where were you born? You know, what were your parents like? It's all about memory. Uh, And then about... Seven years ago, I read this account of a 44-year-old Frenchman who went to see a doctor because he had some weakness in his left leg. And when they did all kinds of laboratory tests and X-rays and electroencephalograms and all that, they discovered to their surprise that the man had virtually no brain. Hmm. He had a very thin crust of cerebral tissue and the left of his the, the, the rest of his skull was just cerebrospinal fluid. It, that, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's called hydrocephalus in, in medical jargon. Um, but he was a 44 year old civil servant, married, two children, held a job for all intents and purposes, behaved in a normal way, Thought normally had normal emotions. Was normal. So I thought to myself, "How is this possible? <laughs> like, you know, how can a person be normal without a brain?" And so I started to look into the literature because I was just really, really puzzled by this. And um, and 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 I found out, you know, doing research. Uh, I found out that, for example, a lot of kids who have epilepsy have part of their brains removed in order to cure them of their epilepsy. And they continue to act perfectly normally. Uh, The same thing with adults. It's less frequent in adults, but it certainly happens. So when I saw that, I started to think, well, you know, how is this possible if, if there is no brain then there must be some kind of a backup system in the rest of the body to allow you to lay down memories and to act normally. You know, to remember to get up the next morning and you know all the silly tasks and habits that we have. Uh, I just just couldn't see how you could do that without some kind of a brain system. And so that's what then got me on this uh, journey. Um, which I described then in, in uh, the embodied mind, you know, how, how, how is this possible? And uh, so that takes me then back to your original question, you know, about consciousness. So consciousness and the mind, um, the sense of self, all of these are phenomena produced by functions of the body, the whole body. You see, our civilization for thousands of years has been, as you well know, patriarchal. And patriarchal essentially uh, sort of believes in a hierarchical system. So, you know, it's the head of the family, it's the head of the tribe, it's the head of um, the manufacturing complex, uh, you know, Everything is the head. How do we get ahead? And so the same kind of emphasis on the head has permeated our science. And so everything in science has also been extremely, what I would call, corticocentric, head centric, right? And so it's all about the brain. And what I'm trying to point out was many, many references. There are 500 listed references in my book. The book is based on me having read at least 5,000 books and uh, scientific papers of which only 500, of course, I quote. And it all shows that this emphasis on the head is wrong. It does not serve it does not serve our bodies. It does not serve our humanity. I'm not saying that the head is not important. I'm just saying that we need to have a much more balanced view of the body where the body below the neck is just as important as the body above the head. In other words, the head, uh, the neurons, the brain. So, uh, you know, instead of this kind of a binary separation between the the, the body and the head, What I'm advocating is a more unified system of looking at the body. And if medicine and pharmaceutical companies, for example, would begin to accept this, it would make a huge difference in our health.
0: Very interesting. I want to talk more about this as we continue talking with Dr. Thomas Verney. And of course, uh, the work that we're talking about has to do uh, with uh, a new uh, piece of, uh, we'll call it literature of sorts, a book called The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. And uh, we're also going to tell you that you can go to his website, which is tr. Uh, of MD. that's T-R-V-E-R-N-Y-M-D.com to find out more as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's really a pleasure to have this conversation because one of the things that I was introduced to to many years ago was this concept of cellular memory Uh, in that... um, When we have a trauma, physical, a physical trauma, um, those cells hold on. Now, here's the interesting fact, and I'm interested in in your observations on this. It is said that every seven years, we have a brand new body, inner and outer, because all of the cells regenerate, uh, you know, and and so we have a brand new body. Uh, So... This was one of the things that I've put to some people in this regard. I have my left eye, glaucoma. I have no vision in it. Now, I was born legally blind with nystagmus, nystagmus stigmatism, and uh, cataracts. And then, of course, when I moved to Santa Barbara, I, have, I, I lost the vision in my left eye. Uh, I had a lens implant in my right eye. Well, here's the question. If every seven years, the cells regenerate, that would include the eye. Why is it, rege- and maybe this has to do with that cellular memory, why isn't it regenerating to a healthy seeing eye? Maybe at 2040, 2060, if not 2020. It seems to me that that, that, would, that would make a whole lot more sense, almost along the lines of, Regenerating a limb—if you—if you lost a limb, you could regenerate that. What's uh, what's the deal?
1: <laughs> well, boy, that's a that's a wonderful question. Um, well, uh, the, there is research being done on regeneration. Um, there is um, a uh, professor Michael Levin L E V I N at Tufts University uh, in Massachusetts is doing an incredible amount of work on just that question, uh, you know, regeneration. And it seems to be, it seems to happen in in lower animals, like planaria, for example. Uh, I don't know whether you have heard of uh, research on planaria, which are very, very simple worms. Uh, bilateral, They they have sort of the same structure as we have, like they have tiny little brains on both sides, Um, but when when you cut up a planaria, and from every part of that planarian's body, whether it's the tail, whether it's the middle, whatever, a new planarian grows out, and that planarian will largely remember whatever the original planaria was taught. So if the original planaria was taught, you know, how to run through mazes or anything like that, the regrown planaria will be better at it, will not be perfect, but will certainly be better at it than a, a planarian that has never learned anything about that particular maze. So this is very, this, this happens in planaria. It, as you go up the uh, evolutionary ladder, it happens less and less. So like we are not able to regenerate a limb Whereas some other animals are, um, and your question about the eye is is absolutely wonderful, and I don't have the answer to that. Um, but if you uh, if you want to interview Mike Levin on that, I would suggest that you do. He he may have he may have an answer. Yeah, um, it's it's a terrific answer. I I would imagine that you know there has been so much damage done in that particular part of the tissue of your organism um, that no amount of um, new cells can somehow make up for the damage that mm. was done. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, I mean, it's the same thing with a broken limb, you yeah. know. Uh, it will, uh, if you set your leg when it was broken, uh, it will heal but will never be as strong as it was before it was broken, okay? There will always be a kind of a stress line there. Uh, So we are, as humans, and I don't know sort of about other animals, but we as humans are not that good at at healing ourselves. Um, So uh,
0: Are we not that good at healing ourselves because we don't know how what the process works what's what's the reason why we're not that good at it
1: Uh, I think that our tissues are not as good at it Um, perhaps Mm. uh, perhaps our minds are not as good at it Um, let me tell you let me tell you about a a very simple uh, very simple study that was done in New York one psychologist from uh, from Harvard did a study on 84 hotel maids. Uh, these were uh, women who were cleaning rooms in a hotel in New York. And to half of them, he said that what you do, the work that you do, actually meets the standards of physical exercise by some big authority in the United States. Um, And so that's what half of them were told. The other half was not told anything like that. A month later, uh, the researchers measured sort of um, all kinds of other measures on, on both groups of women. The women who believed that they were actually exercising while they were working did not work any differently from the other ones. but all their physical measures improved. Their blood pressure dropped, their weight dropped, uh, the circumference around their abdomen dropped. I forgot all the other good things that happened to them. And of course the other group did not change at all. And so what this means is that just believing something can have a tremendous effect on your on your body. Uh, What you believe in really is is incredibly important. So, you know, coming back to, you know, why certain things perhaps don't heal. Well, perhaps one of the reasons, and I'm just speculating, but one of the reasons may be that we don't believe that it can heal.
0: Ah, you know, I was approached when working for a Christian radio station by a group of people who... Uh, conducted a prayer program they would encourage people to call in for their healing and they came into the control room and they said that they wanted to lay hands on me to uh, heal my eyes well at that time I said "Uh, thank you but no thank you because that is not my purpose in this life to be healed my purpose in this life as I saw it then is to serve you, to, to help you, to make your program sound the best that they can, to show you the kindness and the courtesy and, the, uh, uh, and so forth that uh, you deserve. Whether I agree or disagree with your contents irrelevant. The, the relevancy is that your uh, program is clean and clear and people can understand what you're talking about and they can then make up their own minds. And So maybe that's uh, you may be absolutely right. It's not even a question of my believing it. It's like It's not really a focus. It's just a and for me It's more of a question because I've had low vision in my left eye all my life from birth
1: How is your vision from your right eye
0: vision from my right eye happens to be uh, happens to be um, actually pretty darn good because uh, it's, I had a lens implant in, uh, in uh, 20, uh, in, actually in 2000, uh, no, 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 1996. Where am I going with this? In 1996. And um, I got it, you know, I got the lens implant. And uh, I'm now driving. I wasn't driving before. I was trying to get a driver's license. For uh, just a moped. I just want to ride a moped. Come on, Arizona. Give me a break. And at (laughs) one point, I just said, you know what? Forget it. You know, I'm fine the way that I am. If I'm bicycling at the age of 65, hey, I will be healthier than most. Uh, I'll, I'll be having fun doing this and so forth and so on. And so I let it go. I did. I didn't let it bother me. It's like, hey, you know, this is this is my life. It's okay. Technology finally caught up with me in '96, and then the lens implant. And what do you know? Now, I'm actually driving, and it really blew me away when we moved to uh, Santa Barbara. When we were driving with all our stuff across uh, from Arizona Phoenix to uh, Santa Barbara, there we are, in Los Angeles in the evening, and I'm looking around. And I have I was in awe of the fact that uh, I'm actually driving in L.A. traffic. Um, it was absolutely a, an amazing thing. So, uh, you know, I think that 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 may be it. And it's 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 not something that. It's funny too because someone said to me once, "Well, what about your depth perception? How do you know that somebody's getting closer to you? You know, if you know on the freeway or the highway or the roadway and so forth?" I said, "Well." You know, it's quite simple. If they're getting bigger, I'm getting closer. It's not that hard to figure out. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Verney here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're talking about, I think, a a fascinating subject. And I hope that you folks will go out and get a copy of his book. I think it's just an extraordinary work that you want to find out about uh, in terms of maybe better understanding who and what we are, the embodied mind understanding the mysteries, and they are mysteries, of cellular memory, as we were just kind of talking about. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. Consciousness and our bodies. Um, the body, am I correct, is sort of an electromagnetic... The body is an electromagnetic machine of sorts, right?
1: It produces electromagnetic waves. Yeah. yes and those are measurable measurable and the heart is the one that produces the, the strongest electromagnetic current
0: yeah now there are those who have come to me and they say you know what i i i i'm scared about death you know because what if there's nothing after this life and uh, i say well I, I say kindly but sort of in a humorous vein well if there is nothing after this life you're never going to know it okay for starters however my brain my intellect that i was given by and i often say this i as far as i know i did not create myself um i say uh it doesn't make any sense that we go through all that we're going through in this life we ponder these incredible questions like Who am I? Where am I from? Where am I going? Uh, You know, how did I get here? And so on and so forth. Those great philosophical questions that have been pondered for thousands of years. And then there's nothing else. Because if that's the case, then my life really doesn't have any meaning. And there's something inside of me, Doc, that says my life does have meaning. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's... My still small voice. We talk about that a lot on this program. Is that part of the consciousness, the mind? Where does that come in in terms of us sort of—I don't want to say acquiescing, but uh, listening to and then following the promptings, trusting and following the promptings of that uh, that still small voice.
1: Well, you know, I think I think that is a question that people have been grappling with you know for time immemorial i mean when you go back to the most primitive what we call uh primitive people you know thousands and thousands of years ago 50,000 years ago you know you know you have these uh caves in france where uh, uh people have been making drawings right um and uh somehow sooner or later every every civilization, for lack of a better term, kind of develops some kind some kind of a religion uh, which always deals with this particular problem. I think that people have to invent religion because they're afraid of death. And, uh, and one way of overcoming it is to believe, like what you have said, and I'm not saying that it's wrong. Uh, I'm just Trying to follow the trajectory of it, uh, people say, "Well, you know, surely, surely, my life cannot be totally meaningless." I mean, you know, going through all this crap that we go through—you know, uh, daily, weekly, monthly struggles um, there must be, there must be some kind of, some kind of an afterlife, you know, like. Surely, you know, it can't end here. So people have been for centuries uh, finding, trying to find some answer to this and, uh, you know, postulating that there is an afterlife, postulating that there is some kind of a God uh, who looks after you and will take you into his or her arms when you die. I mean, all of that makes us feel better but I don't have an answer to it. Um, I I know no more than you do about that. Um, I, I look into the science and the science that I know of does not answer that question.
0: Well, it is an interesting question, uh, nonetheless, and we want to uh, talk more about the work that you're doing. Uh, Dr. Thomas Verney is my guest. He is, of course, on YouTube. He's Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, we're very happy to have him here on the program talking about his book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and our bodies here on tell me your story i'm richard dugan your host and it's really a, a great pleasure to have uh, dr thomas verney here on the program to talk about this uh, this 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 aspect of of who we are um from your research from your investigation from your study uh who, who are we? I mean, I, I could I could actually throw out a couple of who are we, what are we, <laughs> even where are we, uh, and I know people want to know why are we, and of course that probably gets more into philosophy, but who are we really, because am I wrong in the assertion that we're immortal, not the physical body, but who we really are? It's a, it's a wonderful question. And uh,
1: I'm sure that if you interviewed a hundred or a thousand people, you would probably get a hundred or a thousand different answers, because when there are more answers than there are questions, then you know that there are no, that there is no right answer. Um, everybody is grappling with the well, every thinking person, obviously is grappling with this problem, especially as you get older. I mean, when you are in your 20s and 30s, you think you'll never die. And you look at people like you and I, and you figure, oh, what do they know? They're, you know, old people, right? They know nothing. Uh, But when you get into your 50s and 60s, you begin to think of the end of life. And you begin to ask these questions. And um, I think I I need to go back to what you said when you were talking about uh, those good Christian people trying to offer you prayers, and you said, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to help people, right? So I think, you know, all I can tell you is that for myself, that's exactly how I feel. that as long as I can serve people, as long as I can make one person's life a little bit better, then I have achieved the purpose of my life. And I don't know whether (laughs) uh, there is an afterlife or not. Uh, All the scientific studies that I have done, and God knows I've done a great deal of them, do not answer that question. So we will just have to find out, won't we? Won't we? <laughs> and,
0: and, then, and and the interesting thing is, is uh, as they say, we will not find out together. We okay. will find out on an individual solo ride, if you will. I just hope that, and maybe you remember this, I just hope that it's an e-ticket ride. That's all I can say.
1: Ticket. Okay.
0: Yeah, you remember Disneyland, they used to have those tickets and the e-ticket was the one that was prized above all. So that's not economy. That's first class. <laughs> that's right. You are absolutely correct. Uh, and I loved it. I was it was uh it was great fun when I went as a kid. I haven't been in a long time. Uh, and that kind of raises the next question in terms of, let's get back to cellular memory. Now, you have also, uh, and this ties into cellular memory, you have also written three other books, Cordless, you've also written another one in regarding pre-parenting, nurturing your child from conception, and then the third book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, how you can prepare your baby for a happy healthy life now i want to share with you real quickly i'm going to make this brief because i want your observation on this i participated in a series of programs back in the 80s and 90s as probably a lot of folks did personal growth and development life spring was that in the early 80s but in the 90s i met up with a gentleman by the name of george adair not necessarily the famous one he has an organization in, that's based in Phoenix called, um, I think right now it's called Omega Vector. It used to be called Delta Vector. And he used to have these Monday evening, once a month booster shots, so to speak. You'd come to the the uh, seminar center and we'd all sit there and he would he would share with us his thoughts based upon his research. Primarily with the, the zero point from Teilhard de Chardin and, uh, and Pierre, I'm trying to remember his last name right now. But anyway... And he talked specifically about the creation of a, a human being. And if the, conce- if the process of conception was a, shall we say, between the couple, was a loving, nurturing, um, warm, and uh, uh, caring experience for both of them, The odds were that the child would carry that particular, shall we call it cellular memory as they developed, whereas a child of, let's say, anger and rape and a a, a violent conception would come out with that energy. From your observations, especially from those two, if not three books, uh, is that, an accurate statement by George uh, when he shared that with us. And that's one of the reasons why we have maybe some of the problems that we have in this country and around the world.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um,
1: the secret life of the unborn child uh, is now published in 27 countries. It's a huge bestseller. Um, it, it's uh, in hardcover, in paperback. Uh, it's still selling. Um, when I published that, it was published by Simon and Schuster in 1983. So a long time ago, but it's still, it's, it's still on the bookshelves. People are still buying it. And what I wrote about in that book and that I have continued to lecture on and talk about is the fact that how you are conceived and the first nine months um, in your mother's womb the way you are born and then the way you are birthed, and of course brought up, all those things make a huge difference in terms of the kind of person that you will become. So uh, children you know, that are born as a result of a loving encounter between their parents and that are held in the womb with a great deal of love and affection where the mother and father perhaps talk to the baby, you know, while the baby is growing in the womb, and when the baby is properly burst, um, preferably not cesarean, but naturally born, uh, all those things will leave an impression on the personality and health of that individual. So, you know, in terms of the immune system, for example, or the development of the brain, uh, all of those signals that the child receives which are both physical and mental from the mother and the environment all of those will affect uh the physical and emotional development of that child so i totally 100 percent, agree with uh, the teachings of those two gentlemen that you mentioned
0: you know it's interesting how Uh, I read uh, in Autobiography of a Yogi about a scientist by the name of Jagadish Chandra Bose who developed a device, and they think that was, this may have been back in the 1920s, uh, possibly 30s, and it was called the Crescograph where he would measure what was referred to as the turgor pressure, similar to our blood pressure, of plants, and he would take a cloth with chloroform and he would bring it close to the plant, and the turgor pressure would drop, almost to non-existent. Then he removes the chloroform, and the turgor pressure returns. And it, it got me to thinking about vegetarians. He has basically proven that they're... they're uh, I don't know that they're necessarily sentient, but that certainly uh, gives you some clue as to how alive they are. And vegetarians don't want to eat living things, so now, what are you going to eat? I mean, if you want to be a breatharian, that's fine. Just save enough for the rest of us. But uh, I thought it was a fascinating uh, uh, section in the book uh, about how we are able to measure. And I, I, I would be very interested. I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe you have some information on. Uh, uh, I know animals and plants. We can we can measure uh, the the effects of certain things, especially. You know, they've done tests where you speak angrily to one plant and you're loving and playing great music to the other and you see the difference in their growth. Then I wonder about mineral, rock, crystals, and those kinds of things. And I wonder if the same thing applies, but we don't have yet the technology to measure the energy output of uh, of the minerals on the planet even the dirt for that matter. Your thoughts? Well, I, I, think, that, I think that we have
1: an ethical problem uh, with eating animals, you know, animal protein. I, I definitely think that there's, there's a big ethical problem. Um, just in the mar- March of this year, um, scientists from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, uh, they did, um, They measured thousands, they made thousands of acoustic recordings uh, throughout the lives of pigs and from their birth to death. And they what what they found was that they, they were able to translate pig grunts into actual emotions across an extended number of conditions and life stages. And they what they wrote about in, in, this, um, in this article that was published just a few months ago uh, was the fact that they could they could measure emotions of pigs, that they had definitely emotions, you know positive, negative, happy, unhappy. And these are pigs that we eat you know every day and look down on you know dirty pigs. They are not dirty, they are very smart, they are smarter than dogs in many cases. And, you know, and the same thing applies uh, to birds, for example, birds are incredibly smart. You know, there are some, some birds who, who, who can speak in 30 accents. And, and when you come to octopuses, you know, they don't have brains, they have neurons in their arms, but they have personalities and uh, they, can, they can be playful. They can be loving. So, you know, I could go on and on and on. Uh, The point is that we have really somehow, you know, underestimated our ancestry. You know, Uh, we have made this huge differentiation between us humans at the top of the evolutionary ladder and then everything below it. And that is just simply wrong because we are really all connected. We are all connected uh, to the lowest, all the way to bacteria and viruses nowadays. You know, we learn so much about viruses. So, um, you know, eating other animals who, in some ways, are just like us is very unethical. And, um, and, and I'm not surprised that there are a lot of people who are vegetarians. Now, if you come to plants who are also alive, I mean, if you're not going to eat plants, (laughs) you know, we we will certainly not um, subsist on minerals. So I don't know what to do about that. Uh, Once again, you have asked a very good question (laughs) to which um, I don't have a proper answer. But, you know, sometimes it's better to have good questions than good answers.
0: Well, it raises an interesting uh, uh, um, question in regards to what was really big, faddish, if you will. I think it was back in the 70s, and that was the pet rock. Oh, yes, the pet rock. Yes, of course. And so that's kind of where the question comes from. It's like, well, now wait a minute. If humans and animals and plants are alive they have an energy signature, they have a vibration and so forth, then wouldn't minerals also, I mean, I know that many people who use crystals for a lot of different things, and of course we know, for example, the old crystal radio sets, they were actually using crystals to generate, you know, the, the, the reception of the waves that are in the air. Uh, then the pet rock... You, 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 it actually could be a pet. It's, you know, I mean, there's, there's gotta be some way to prove <laughs> that the rock is alive and has that aspect to it, but we won't, we won't go there right now. We will continue here with Dr. Dr. Thomas Verney. And, uh, of course the book that he has shared, he is sharing with all of us here on the program, of course, is the embodied mind, understanding the mysteries of the, of cellular memory, consciousness, and our bodies and boy we need to we really need to get to the point where we can better understand who and what we are and where we i don't know if we'll ever ever uh figure out where we come from until we leave this we leave this world but we're gonna not we're not leaving yet we're still here with tell me your story i'm richard dugan your host and uh dr thomas verney is my guest and uh as i said uh, uh, several times here it's really a pleasure to have you here. I've, I've always loved these uh, questions that transcend science and, shall we say, philosophy. Some would say spirituality. Um, th- uh, there are two things I'd like to ask you about. First of all, this, when, you, when you described the pig and the research that was done and so forth, and emotion. Uh, I don't know how long we've been doing this, but we have, for, there are some people who receive transplants, and in this case, maybe they will receive the heart of a pig, of an animal, let alone a transplant from another human being who we know is alive and has emotions and has a consciousness. That organ that's being transplanted, it has its own cellular memory, right? So if so... How does that uh, coexist with the existing human being's energy signature, personality, cellular memory? Uh, It seems to me there might be uh, a contradiction. We've seen plenty of science fiction programs where someone's had their eyes transplanted or some other organ transplanted, and uh, it was, say, from... A serial killer who was in prison who said, "I'm going to give, I'm going to give my organs uh, to somebody," and now this person starts to exhibit sort of the those personality traits. Uh, is that is that a little far fetched as far as science fiction is concerned? And how, what is the dynamic there?
1: Well, uh, there's a chapter in my book on heart transplants, personality transplants. That's exactly what it's called. Uh, it's one of the final chapters in my book. And yes, there is, there is very much um, the possibility. It happens in some people, not everybody. It's not clear why it happens in some people and not others. Um, perhaps some people are just more sensitive than others. Um, just like some people are smarter than others. Some people are more sensitive to pain. Uh, some people might be more sensitive in terms of picking up on the transfer of memories from the donor uh, to the recipient. But there is simply no doubt. And, and of all the things, I mean, you know, there are many, many ways of, to support the core concept of my book, which is cellular memory. Uh, and, you know, there are something like, I think there are 10 chapters in my book, and each of them supports it in a different way. But heart transplants um, support it very, very clearly in the sense that I relate a number of, um, of case studies where people have had heart transplants from, let's say, a woman who uh, who who loved who loved meat and hamburgers uh, to a person who was vegetarian and within a few weeks after the heart transplant she started loving meat and forgot about vegetarianism and things of that nature. Okay, real real changes in personality, real real changes, and without knowing the personality of the donor and only later finding out. So. Yes, I think that some personality traits can be transferred. Likes and dislikes can be transferred. Um, I don't think that, you know, um, transferring an eye, uh, for example, would make you see things differently. Um, so I think that's science fiction. But certainly heart transplants, uh, because the heart does contain so many memory cells. Um, that uh, i think it's it is scientifically possible it is feasible um and there is a lot of research to show uh that every cell in our bodies contains memories and um when i think when i think of the memory in our bodies i sort of compare it to a, a um, to an orchestra let's say 120 20 uh, people, um, players, uh, orchestra, and each person, you know, there's the violin and then there's the drum and then there is, you know, all kinds of other instruments. They're all playing, Every, every player plays their instrument. But when you are in the audience, you hear just one sound. And that's what the memory is like. Like there are all these cells giving us tiny, tiny bits of information it all comes together. The head kind of unites it, like the conductor, perhaps, in a symphony orchestra. Um, our, our head brings it all together. And so, what you remember, uh, I don't know where Santa Barbara is, you know, um, you suddenly remember, you know, where it's located and what you remember the last time you were in Santa Barbara. But all of that is brought together by millions and millions of cells, all of them working together in unison and bringing forth this memory. So uh, I think that with the heart, um, there is very little doubt that heart transplants do provide some memory transplant, sometimes more, sometimes less. One of the problems with recognizing this is the fact that doctors don't believe in it. Uh, it is not convenient for doctors to believe in this. Um, if they are, go- you know, they don't want to tell their patient that, you know, after you've had this heart transplant, there might be some personality problems. No, who wants to say that, you know, to a patient undergoing heart surgery, right? They, they have got enough worries on their minds. You know, I mean, your heart is going to be, your, your old heart is going to be taken out of your body you know for several hours you will be on a heart lung uh, machine you know you will be having you know a machine pumping blood into you. I mean all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to tell them that they might have a personality transplant also. So you know doctors don't tell their patients patients don't know about it. and so when they do start having perhaps, Uh, some inkling of personality changes, perhaps their tastes uh, have changed, Uh, their taste in music, their taste in food, uh, even gender preferences. Uh, I read about one woman who was like totally into into other women. Uh, And after the heart transplant, she became like totally heterosexual. All these things can happen, but you have to be open to it. And if you think that it's just like craziness because of the operation that you have undergone and don't pay any attention to it and try to close your mind to it, well, then it's not gonna happen.
0: You know, uh, I have one other question I wanted to address with you, Dr. Thomas Verner, who is the author of, uh, again, it is it is a fascinating book, and it is entitled The Embodied Mind. We hope that you will go to his website. And that website, ladies and gentlemen, is trvernermd.com, trvernermd.com. We're talking about understanding the mysteries of cellular memory, consciousness, and our bodies and we certainly hope that you will stay with us here on tell me your story i'm richard dugan your host and it's really a pleasure to have a doctor uh verner here as we talk about uh uh, about this this work yes sir not verner it's verney verney i I got it right up until that point didn't i dr thomas verney Dot com and that's TR md.com we hope that you will go there and pick up a copy of his book uh, doctor I wanted to ask you a, sort of a big question in regards to in regards to what I believe it was Carl young who uh, speculated I guess or hypothesized that there is only one mind, a universal mind, Uh, what about the, does this theory apply to cellular memory of the universe, of our solar system, uh, you know, of our galaxy and so on and so forth, Uh, you know, I mean, because we then talk about, we'll talk about maybe, Uh, Throwing in there, astrology, people will say that this planet will affect you this way, that planet will affect you that way in terms of um, the vibrations, the movement, the this, the magnetism, the gravity, on and on and on and on. I mean... The, I will use the simplest of examples, and that's the moon. Look at how it affects our water, the oceans, and how they go. Tides roll in and then they roll out, which means it's got to be affecting the water that's within our physical beings. So, what about that in terms of the universal mind, the universal memory, and so forth?
1: Uh, that is once again a very good question, but. I'm afraid that that's sort of beyond my science Uh, that I I, I don't have the answer to that. Um, There are people who can, well, who who attempt to answer that. Have you ever interviewed Bruce Lipton?
0: Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, I've had him on the program. Fascinating conversation.
1: Exactly. Well, he would, he would speak to that much better than I can. Um, I think that I'm just going to limit myself to what I know, and that is an area that I simply have not studied sufficiently. So I really, I'm I'm not qualified to
0: answer that. Okay, and I appreciate your candor. Uh, one of the things that I, I would have to say from a philosophical standpoint, uh, you know, we talked about the existence of God and uh, an afterlife and so forth, and I think that regardless of what philosophy you choose to adopt in terms of your beliefs, I think that the most honest position one can take is the one that Larry King took. And he would talk about this all the time. I actually went to his uh, unofficial school of broadcasting when I listened to, to him on Mutual. And that is the position of an agnostic. I don't know. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Oops, you're frozen. Okay, you were frozen there for a second. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, that's exactly my position. Agnostic. I'm not an atheist. Just agnostic.
0: And how may I ask how you were uh, how you were raised? Uh, what philosophy uh, was uh, influenced you at a at that early age by your parents?
1: Uh, mostly agnostic. You know, uh, pay pay attention like respect everybody else's religion uh, and when you are old enough, make up your mind what you want to believe in.
0: I like that. My parents did the same thing for us. Uh, they, 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 even though they raised us Catholic, you know, um, my mother one Sunday when I got home from delivering newspapers, she said, uh, that I didn't have to go to mass that morning cause I was just, I was exhausted and it, it was years later. I asked her why, and she said, because I didn't want you to push away from the church. Now, I don't consider myself a practicing Catholic, but I'm not an ex-Catholic. I'm not a former Catholic. I'm a metaphysician who um, takes the phrase from the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, of which I was a part of for a year and a half back in the 90s, if you accept one of the messengers of God, you accept them all. If you reject one of the messengers of God, you reject them all. And uh, so that's the position that I take uh, as far as as far as my philosophy is concerned. And it's just uh, it's just very interesting how so many people, uh, like the like the Christians that I worked around, all of them I would say the, the majority of them were very nice. They were very. Uh, Uh, they were very considerate and courteous they didn't uh, push anything on me actually come to think of it I tended to push (laughs) I tended to push them my mother told me in 1979 when I was taking a six month so to speak sabbatical from uh, from high school graduation why don't you go work for the religious radio station I said I don't want them forcing their beliefs down my throat well I was kind of doing, the, doing that because I was asking those questions of, I will refer to it as an heretical nature. I would, I would have emblazoned, I would accept it too, a giant H on my forehead and wear it proudly. Because the answers they gave me to my questions didn't make any sense. And I continue to ask those questions and uh, uh, speculate as to uh, what, uh, what's next. What are we going to, you know, where are we going? And, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think I love the, the writings. A gentleman you might be familiar with, possibly, uh, Dr. Newton, who did LBL, or Life Between Lives uh, study and research, putting people into a hypnotic state, a conscious hypnotic state. I've been through this. And uh, there were no leading questions, uh, Doc. They were questions along the lines of, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? Uh, You know, and so on and so on. It was wanting me to give that the practitioner, if you will, the facilitator, what I was experiencing. And I have to tell you that it was fascinating. Uh, So I was able to sort of tap into a previous life. The last one before this one, I was a pioneer farmer who had a cabin up in the mountains, which is where I left my body And went into that space between that life and this one. It's really, really fascinating. But what about this aspect when people, uh, you know, science does not like to admit that people are actually having those experiences when they're having a near death or out of body experience. Or what have you, and oh, that's just the neural uh, neurons in the brain firing off, you know, because there's you know there's no real control in there, and that's what's happening. And it's, and yet the stories from so many, independent of one another, are so similar. Any uh, any conversation on that? Any uh, expansion from your perspective? Oh, I think that um, you know what
1: what you and I I think have in common is that we ask questions. Uh, try to make sense uh, out of the universe, right? And so um, I think it's just an, an interesting life. I have enjoyed it. Um, I hope I have contributed in some ways to progress. Um, but uh, I definitely believe that there is a spiritual dimension to our lives. Um, I have a very good friend uh, who, who is a Baha'i, who, who belongs to the Baha'i faith. And uh, when we were talking about, you know, fear of death, he said, well, you know, like the baby in the womb, when before it gets born, it probably worries about what's on the other side. You know, what's going to happen to me, you know, after I die in, in a sense, you know, because the baby is leaving nine months of, uh, of living in this environment, right? And entering perhaps nothing. I mean, the baby doesn't know what's outside. So he says, it's like that with life. You know, you die and you move into another form of existence, I guess. So I guess that makes me feel a little bit better. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I I find the Baha'i faith very uh, very inviting. I also like Buddhism a lot. Um, I like faiths that uh, don't believe that they're the only that that they are the only, the, only faith that really matters, and everybody else is below them. I don't like that.
0: That was one of the challenges that I had working for the Christian station. It didn't make sense to me because then I began to take a look at our lives uh, and how. Uh, we can go out and eat millions of different things, drink millions of different things, the experiences that we're having. Um, I, I mean, you just go down the list of, of what it is that a human being uh, ha- needs to do in terms of breathing and so on and so forth. And then there's only one way. That doesn't make any sense. That's so illogical.
1: Of course. I agree. I agree Totally. Yes, well, uh, I think we have had a wonderful conversation.
0: Absolutely, and absolutely. Feel free to call me anytime when you feel like having another one. I would love to have you back again. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Verney. Uh, trverneymd.com is the website, and of course, the book that we're talking about in particular here, of course, is The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular uh, Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies, and um, you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, Dr. Uh, Verney, I want to ask you three final questions that I ask all of my guests. You may have addressed them to some degree during the program, but I like to ask them directly. Before I do, I want to let you know that you are listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices. Don't make your dreams come true. We're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Wednesdays for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. Uh, we uh, stream live at those times, as I say, at richarddugan.com with podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. We also are on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. I hope that you will do that. And I ask you to subscribe, not to raise my numbers. I, I That is so irrelevant to me. I want, I want as many people to listen to these uh, podcasts and videocasts as possible. Uh, But I also want you to know when a new interview is posted, and that's why I ask you to subscribe so you get notified and you can listen to another fascinating program. At least I find them fascinating, and I hope you'll do that. We also ask that if you can support us financially, we have a PayPal account. It's your, your security as well as ours. And also participate in the decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, where we ask you to go within. Listen to that still small voice and spend quiet time in that quiet, peaceful place. That's one place no one else but you can get to. It's kind of cool. It really is. With that, we now go to our final three questions. And the first of those three questions is, who is Thomas R. Verney?
1: psychiatrist author human being father and husband
0: what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now I want to find
1: answers to The question of what makes a human being
0: kind and loving. And finally, what is your life's purpose?
1: I don't know what my life's purpose is. Uh, Nobody told me. Um, I have not heard a voice from above. I have not had a secret message in a bottle. I don't know what my life's purpose is. Um, All I know is that there is an awful lot of suffering in the world. And if I can in any way contribute to lessen that, then that is what I have tried to do and will continue to do as long as I live.
0: Well, Dr. Thomas Verney, again, I thank you so much for sharing your story and the book uh, that you have written and all of the research uh, that leads up to it, especially through the other books that you have, but this one in particular, The Embodied Mind, and we will be linked to your website so that people can uh, continue their own research. So thank you again. Thank you, Richard. Total pleasure. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story. New paradigms for a new world as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.